Blasting caps are the missing piece to future automation of drilling and blasting on the bench. And the question becomes, are we there yet to where we can start looking at the development of the machinery to fully autonomize the blast loading process? Academyblasting.tv Welcome back everybody to Academyblasting.tv We have a very exciting episode coming up here where we'll be talking about blasting caps and initiation systems in the drilling and blasting industry. And this is something that we're really hitting a good stride with because there have been a lot of new innovations in about the last year that most people in the industry still aren't fully aware of or they do not fully comprehend what's going on. And I remember about a year ago now, I was sitting in Europe listening to a uh, presentation on these new wireless blasting caps and how they may change the industry. And you could feel there was a general skepticism in the room due to things such as the cost and the new advent of this uh, sort of system. But for me, I was filled with hope because this is really one of the key critical components we will need in order to start automation of uh, the blast loading process. And so this is going to be a great tool coming forward in the next five years or so, uh, where we're really going to see this product brought to the market in a much wider respect. There, uh, The introductory studies that have been done show a lot of promise. It's been used in full-scale blasts, and we're going to be talking about that here today. But before we get into the wireless blasting caps and the future of this industry, let's go back and take a look at sort of how these initiation systems have evolved, what were the critical components of that evolution, and why we're moving forward and progressing in the direction we're progressing. So first, we'll have to take a dive back to the 16 and 1700s. This was before the invention of blasting caps, before the invention of safety fuse, and it's just pure engineering ingenuity that sort of led to these considerations. You know, originally when the blasting industry first started back in 1627 on that fateful day, there was no stemming used in boreholes, and the way that that shot was loaded, there's few records of the actual initiation system, but what is sort of proposed and was proposed in the late 17 and early 1800s in some of the writings of the scientists and explosive historians of the time, were that quills of feathers were filled with black powder, and they were brought out of the drift, and that is what was actually initiated in order to blast that shot. There was very few holes, they were filled with small amounts of black powder, and again, the whole point was, how do we get rock to break because even breaking a face into boulders was a significant improvement and dramatically reduced the labor required in the mines the thing was later in the late 1600s about 1670 1675 somewhere in there uh, the hungarians introduced stemming now back in the day it was called tamping and the reason was is they'd take clay that was partially wet, very, very low moisture content, um, but they had some water in there to help it stick better, and they'd shove this into a borehole, small amounts, they'd pack some in, and they'd push a wooden rod in after that, and that would go and pack that clay inside of it. Now what they found was this resulted in great 
improvements to the explosive efficiency. They were braking better. They were having farther face advances. And it reduced, again, the amount of man hours required to secondary break that rock. You have to think, this was still the time of manual labor in the mining industry. So this stemming came about and it it faced a new challenge in that how do we go about actually then getting that explosive beyond this stemming zone to ignite? There was a couple ways that this was approached. The same as before with the uh, feather filled with black powder, which was ignited and uh, burned into the borehole was used. They also used straw and they take straw, they'd fill that with black powder, they put that into the borehole and now it gave them a channel through that stemming zone. There were some reports even in uh, later times of people using things like bamboo and filling bamboo shoots with black powder and that would create a channel that that black powder could be confined and burned through to actually get through that stemming zone. But what became the most widely used system was actually known as a pricker. And what this was is you can think of a long metal rod. And when they'd load the charge, they'd, they'd fill their portion of the borehole with black powder to the point that it was uh, sufficiently filled for their blast design. They'd take this pricker, they'd put that down all the way into that black powder. They would then fill the tamping. And when they were filling it, you have to understand... They were packing partially wet, pretty dry, but partially wet clay into that borehole. And they'd pack this together. And after they were done stemming that hole, they'd remove that pricker. And by removing that pricker, they'd leave a channel way through the stemming. Especially on surface, this was extremely effective because the boreholes were vertical or, or mostly vertical. And then they could go in there and they'd pour black powder into that and they'd gently pack black powder through that stemming zone. So they'd have a constant charge of small diameter black powder that would burn all the way down into the borehole. And this lasted for over 200 years, these sort of systems of bringing the black powder through the stemming zone. Until in 1831, William Bickford invented the safety fuse. This was a major revolution because you have to think before this, the way to ignite that black powder was a person would actually have to ignite it and then they'd have to run and get behind cover a short distance from the blast. Well, with the invention of safety fuse, blasters now knew what time they had to basically get out of the way, right? So the way this worked is you'd have boreholes loaded. We can think of an underground face. We have boreholes and we have this safety fuse now going through that stemming or tamping zone to that black powder charge. And that safety fuse had a set and known burn rate, let's say 30 seconds per foot. And what this would allow to happen is blasters could bring out multiple strands of the safety fuse from every hole, tie that into a block of safety fuse. So let's say we have five holes tied into one single strand of safety fuse, and maybe we have three groups of that. And those three strands of safety fuse that are left are tied together into one. A blaster could ignite that and have sufficient time to get out of the way, knowing how long they had to get out of the danger zone. This dramatically reduced injuries in the blasting industry. And that's why it was termed safety fuse. Now, safety fuse is still used in some 
places today, uh, even in the United States, Canada, places like that, we see safety fuse used to sometimes initiate shots underground, uh, but it has sort of fell by the wayside as new initiation systems have come out. But the switch from that black powder to the safety fuse was, in all intents and purposes, a function of safety. Well, safety fuse worked great, except eventually we switched to nitroglycerin-based explosives. And this came actually in the form of pure nitroglycerin. They used to take nitroglycerin, put it in glass vials and uh, jars, glass, you can think of like a mason jar. And they'd put liquid nitroglycerin, they'd lower that into the borehole. Now that was very dangerous in itself, but the safety fuse had problems reliably igniting nitroglycerin-based explosives. And we'll, we'll use that term nitroglycerin-based explosives to categorize all of the explosives that had nitro bases. This is straight dynamite, gelatinous dynamite, ammonia dynamites, uh, pure nitroglycerin, and all the different other forms of uh, products available in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Now, with this nitroglycerin-based product, a new invention had to be made that could reliably detonate them in every sense and setting. And this is what led Alfred Nobel to invent the blasting cap in 1863. Now, this blasting cap used a small charge that would initiate and reliably detonate nitroglycerin explosives every time. Originally, this was actually used in accordance with safety fuse. So you take the blasting cap, you could crimp that onto your safety fuse, put it in the borehole, and still use your safety fuse. And it looks like around this time is also when timing started to come into effect. And it wasn't a huge mixture, but you have to think that marks a huge change in the blasting industry. We went from blasting being a three-dimensional arena where we'd have boreholes initiating at almost a random time, a random setting, into boreholes that now were timed to detonate at separate parts and, and at set sequencing. Now, this was fairly difficult back in the day, right? We're talking about very minor changes to length of safety fuse for boreholes. And in underground, it was much harder to do. But in surface, the late 1800s is about when we start seeing some of this being introduced and some of the uh, theories coming into effect on it. Now, eventually we had the electric blasting cap made. And the history of electric blasting caps is not very well known to, to many people uh, because there was a lot of innovation going on at that time. And you had many different groups working on trying to uh, improve blasting overall. Now, the first electric blasting cap was actually made by Benjamin Franklin in 1750. And what he did, he was experimenting with electricity, and he wanted to see what electricity would do to black powder. So he took a small amount. Some of the reports indicate a gram up to 10 grams of black powder, put it in a uh, paper sack, and he put two wires into it. And he put electricity through those wires and the black powder detonated or deflagrated, right? It combusted. Now, this isn't necessarily what Benjamin Franklin exactly predicted would happen, but he thought it was an incredible revelation. He wrote about it in his journals and his notes, uh, but that was sort of where that technology fell by the wayside. 
It wasn't manufactured. And one of the big reasons is at this time, there was no realistic way to get this electric blasting cap to detonate in the field. So really that study sort of ended with the understanding that electricity could cause black powder to combust, but it was not widely adopted. The first widely manufactured and patented blasting cap, as far as I'm aware, was developed by Henry Julius Smith in 1868. So over a hundred years after Benjamin Franklin proved that it was possible. Now we had a methodology which removed the actual safety fuse from the production line. The big problem still at this time was that there was no realistic way to get this technology detonated in the field. And this didn't come about until Henry Julius Smith invented the electric blasting machine in 1878. And this is what uh, many people today know and see in movies still, where we have a large plunger that we push down. And that's what causes these caps to go off. And so now, in 1878, we finally developed the first electric blasting cap. And after that invention, that's when the technology really started progressing into setting apart differences in time in the blasting caps. So think, for 300 years, there was almost no sequencing and no timing done in blasting. And even in the early... Late 1800s and early 1900s, there was relatively little technology and understanding of the timing and sequencing process in blasting. Now, you'll notice that I differentiate those two, and that's because there's major differences between sequencing and timing. Sequencing is simply saying this hole goes off first, this hole goes off second, and this hole goes off third. Timing is saying in order to get the best face movement, the best fragmentation with realistic ground vibration and air overpressure concerns, we need to put this many milliseconds between hole one and two firing and this many milliseconds between hole three and hole four firing. So that started somewhere to really take effect in the early 1900s. So you have to think that's a relatively new technology to us, right? For 300 years, we blasted with almost no considerations of timing and the infancy of timing in blast design started about a hundred years ago and really did not become a major consideration in the blasting process until the 1950s. Now, in the 1950s, there was a lot of work that began being developed on timing. You had full-scale studies in places like the Soviet Union because under the Soviet Union's policies, they gave out a tremendous amount of grant funding into a lot of different areas, including mining, because they knew that the natural resources and the extraction of natural resources would be fundamental to their uh, country and their society. On top of that, they also had to keep university professors happily employed with large grant funding because it remove the risk of things like rebellion occurring, which typically started in the universities. So back in this time, they take and they do full-scale experiments on blasts. And we'll hear from future speakers about how this was actually done. Uh, we have an interview lined up coming in the future on this where uh, they would actually go about sieving and looking through these entire blasts to get actual fragmentation sizing based on timing. 
At the same time, the United States and the various powder companies in the U.S. were also working on discovering how to really optimize and begin sequencing and then later timing the blasts for better results of blasting. And this led to the development of what we call the pyrotechnic delay. This was still before non-electric blasting caps, and they, it started that caps would have set delay periods inside of them. And these were based on the chemical uh, composition or the pyrotechnic composition that would go inside the caps and the length of that composition. And so you'd have these large extruders which would pack and extrude certain lengths of these compounds, and you'd have people that would then cut that to a very finite length and put it into the blasting cap. And we still follow many of those similar procedures today in the manufacturing of these blasting caps, where pyrotechnic delays are based on different compositions and different lengths of compositions for their delay elements. Now we had spacing in time of blasting caps, and we had multiple different blasting caps come to market where we could actually change the timing. Now, this was partially uh, beneficial. Things like the electric blasting cap were partially beneficial to safety, and again, they improved the safety process over that safety fuse because blasters could now get well far away, they could properly safeguard the area, and they had perfect control over the blast, including when they could stop the blast from detonating. You have to understand, it's important because when we have safety fuse in a blast, once we light that and we leave the area, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to stop that blast from going off. So if an unsuspecting person comes into the site, they may run across that, never knowing that it's there, and there's no control we have to stop that blast from occurring. Whereas with an electric system, now the blaster had control. They could remove themselves from immediately next to the blast. They could extend wires hundreds of feet away. They could position guards and they could watch the area to make sure that no one was there when the blast was fired. So it was a major safety improvement in that regard. Now, this was also a blast design improvement. And really what you have to think about is when we improve the blast design, when we get better fragmentation or we have less environmental effects occurring, what we're essentially doing is reducing the total cost for the mine site. And so this is the early days, you could think, of mine-to-mill optimization, introduction of blasting caps to improve fragmentation and reduce secondary crushing costs. Now, in the 1960s, we had a major change occur. And this was when Pierre Anders Pearson began to work on the non-electric blasting cap. And this is widely taken over the industry today. What this uses is, you can think of it as a tube, a plastic tube, that inside is filled with an explosive known as HMX, and is mixed. that HMX is mixed with aluminum. We have very small explosive loads. It's almost like a dust inside of this tube, and so... In the vast majority of cases, this tube does not break apart. It stays intact through the entire detonation process. And now we have a system where we have almost like a dust explosion going through this tube, and it can be easily initiated on the surface. Previous to this, we had processes such as detonating cord caps, 
and the detonating cord cap would actually have a fireball and an explosion on the surface, so it could do things like cause brush to burn. Also, detonating cord we know severely uh, reduces the explosive efficiency in commercial blasting explosives. Now, this was okay in the times of dynamite because it didn't really impact dynamite poorly. But by the 1960s, with anfos and slurries coming to the marketplace, we knew that detonating cord was causing problems. And what detonating cord would do is it would press the explosive. It would not detonate the explosive, but it would compact it on the sides of the wall. This would reduce explosive efficiency in small diameter holes. This could actually stop the explosive from firing. And that would be called dead pressing. Now in larger diameter holes, let's say a four, five, six inch diameter, in these holes, what we'd see is we'd lose significant amounts of energy in both anfos and slurries, water gels or emulsions. And the energy could be 30, 40, 70% reduction from the ideal energy. And with this problem, Pierre Anders Pearson then invented that non-electric blasting cap to give blasters a new technique and a new methodology for the initiation of blasts. Now, this uh, non-electric blasting cap also utilized a pyrotechnic delay element. So again, we have a chemical composition inside of the blasting cap. And this led to numerous problems, including cap scatter and cap tolerance limits. We'll be right back with this podcast episode where we'll continue talking about cap scatter, cap tolerance, and the new detonators of today and tomorrow. But before we get to that, I just want to mention, if you want to learn more about initiation systems, we have great courses at academyblasting.com. This is our online course database, which allows you to take at any time courses in explosives engineering. You can log on and within minutes be accessing top quality information from the leading instructors throughout the industry. At academyblasting.com, you'll be able to take courses on your own pace, on your own schedule, at a very low cost, and really start learning what the new innovations in the industry are. When you're completed with a course, you'll get a set certificate that will help you in your career show off your newfound blasting knowledge, and you can put on your resume or your LinkedIn profile. Thanks again for listening, and now let's get back to the show. Now, this cap scatter topic has become a major problem in especially recent years with the pyrotechnic blasting caps. And the way this was first uh, discovered was actually back in the day by a group at Martin Marietta who were testing to see the accuracy for the firing times of blasting caps. After that group, later it went on to uh, Ohio State's Mining Engineering Department led by Dr. Calvin Konya, who will be a future guest on this podcast, and uh, the U.S. Bureau of Mines, who both did independent and concurrent studies on these blasting caps. And what they found was that there was major discrepancies in when the actual cap would fire based on the rated firing time. Now, this sort of intuitively makes sense, right? Because if we have a pyrotechnic composition and let's say the moisture content is off by a few percent, we know that that can change the burn rate. And when we're talking about milliseconds of burn time, it's pretty evident that there may be 
problems that occur that could lead to discrepancies of 10, 20, 30 milliseconds. On top of that, that length that the product is being cut to also slightly varies. You know, at that point, even millimeter accuracy, which is difficult to obtain, can cause changes in the delay time of the cap. So it's self-evident that there could potentially be some problems here. And this is what blasters were finding. And this really came to fruition when systems such as the fully activated system came around. And this was a methodology of igniting blast back in the day that really caused a lot of problems and headaches. What was theorized is that if you put your downhold delay to as long of a time as possible, let's say 2,000 or 5,000 milliseconds, that all of the holes in the entire blast would be initiated on the surface before the bottom downhole delays would go off, then you would reduce the chance of misfires. And what was found is this system was actually causing misfires through column shifts and cutoffs and reverse order firing of holes. And this was documented on full-scale studies and proven out through some of the research done by the three groups mentioned. Because what they found was that the typical blasting cap had a 95% chance of firing plus or minus 10% around the cap. That means 95% of blasting caps that were rated to fire at 1,000 milliseconds would actually fire between 900 and 1,100 milliseconds. So think about that. If we had a a 1,000 millisecond delay in the bottom of a hole, and the difference in time between rows was 42 milliseconds, which was a very common standard practice and still in smaller shots is carried around today. Let's say we're blasting out a construction project. That's very similar to what we may still use between rows. Well, your cap scatter was now 100 milliseconds, meaning your third row of holes could fire before your first row ever fired. And this was the major problem with these fully activated systems and why most of the industry went back to partially activated systems when using pyrotechnic delays. You could not overcome the cap scatter in the pyrotechnic delays with some of these systems on large blasts. Now, small blasts where, let's say you're using a 375 millisecond delay, We know there the worst case is that the caps can fire plus or minus 37 milliseconds. So putting a 42 millisecond delay in between rows could overcome that cap scatter and still ensure that your sequencing was correct, but your timing would not necessarily be. And there was a lot of research done on this. Another piece of research that came out was called cap tolerance. And what was found is that as caps aged, the actual rated firing times would increase in general. So a newly manufactured cap that was rated for 1,000 milliseconds, the average cap may fire at 950 milliseconds, plus or minus 100 milliseconds. Whereas a cap that's a year old may fire at 1,050 milliseconds. And this really changed a lot of blast design principles and philosophy on how we properly timed blasts. And it caused a lot of problems and concerns in the industry. And because of this in the 1980s, a new process of blasting started to be investigated. And this was the electronic blasting cap. 
Now, the goal of the electronic blasting cap originally was to eliminate this cap scatter and cap tolerance. And so originally what these systems look to do is use computer chips inside of the cap along with a capacitor to fire the actual detonator. And this computer chip could be pre-programmed and some of the initial systems actually used what's called a piezoelectric crystal. And it would be used in combination with a non-electric system. That blast would cause a current to form from that crystal, which would then go and trigger that countdown in the computer chip. At that time, these systems were difficult and expensive to manufacture. They were very large and they weren't widely adopted in the industry. But what they did do is they reduced the cap scatter and the cap tolerance to acceptable limits. Now, as time advanced and just in general, computer and technology and hardware became better, less expensive, and smaller, these caps began being widely manufactured. And today, they're one of the uh, largest areas of the industry that are used, especially in vibration-sensitive places. Now, these electronic blasting caps today are a little bit different, but still very similar and true to their roots in, in what was used back in the 1980s and what was experimented on in the 1980s. These systems today use either a single or dual capacitor most of the time uh, with a small computer chip, and these computer chips are programmable. They do still make non-electric uh, systems that fire an electric or an electronic blasting cap to reduce that cap scatter and cap tolerance. But most of them used today operate based on an electronic basis where we're actually sending a signal to that cap from a set standpoint. And now most of these caps are programmed on the bench. They do not have set or rated firing times. And this is great because it gives us a lot of flexibility in that system. So we can go through there and after we've loaded every hole, we can pull it up on the screen and we can program in what those firing times are. In some cases, we may program those in as we go through the loading process. And really these vary a lot based on each individual manufacturer. So you really have to do some research and look into that specific manufacturer's cap, but they all basically function around the same principles. Now, there's been a lot of interesting discussions that have taken place with these blasting caps. One of the major advantages of them is that we can check to make sure we have what's known as two-way communication from that cap. And what this means is we can send a signal to that cap and that cap will respond to us and tell us if we have a continuous line throughout the process. The way you should properly think about this is that this is the same are very similar to checking the resistance of an electric blasting cap. Basically, what we're doing with this is we're checking continuity of that line, because if that line is frayed and shorting, let's say in the emulsion, we won't have that signal transfer properly, and we can be alerted to that. And in some regards, we're checking that computer chip to make sure it's properly functioning as well. This does not guarantee, though, that the electronic blasting caps are good to go you still can have misfires. For example, this says nothing about if the base charge is actually in the electronic cap. And we know, for example, 
that in many situations, there are, I shouldn't say many, in a few situations, there have been cases where the cap did not have the explosive charge in it. It just had the capacitors and the computer chip. And so those holes didn't go off. In cases where, let's say, we have a dual capacitor system, we're checking to ensure that one of those capacitors is charging. But in an effort to reduce premature initiations, that capacitor is not necessarily wired into our base primary explosive charge there. And we're not necessarily always checking both of those capacitors. These are better and the two-way communication gives us more reliable results and reduces the chance of misfire from the base electric detonator. But there's still ways that misfires can occur with this even when the caps test good. And that's something that's critical to understand. And we've seen situations before where electronic caps have misfired and they tested good. So people thought that this was uh, some other problem that caused that to occur, such as column shift or something of that nature. But that's not necessarily the case. There's other reasons that the electronics can misfire even when they test good. The major benefit of this, though, is when they test bad, we can pull them out and we can reprime that hole with a separate cap to ensure it goes off and alleviate many, many problems with misfires before that blast has gone off. So it's still a great tool to have in our tool belt. There's also been a lot of discussion with lightning. And we know today that lightning can set off electronic blasting caps just as it can electric, non-electric, and all other sorts of explosives. You know, lightning can set off primers. It can set off the actual explosive charge. So they're still not safe to use in lightning storms. And just this year, I was at a site that uh, thought that these electronic blasting caps were safe to use in lightning. And this is an important distinction that there have been premature initiations caused by lightning of the electronic systems. So we don't want to, we still want to make sure we're not out there, we're not around these explosives during lightning. And one of the biggest things that has been brought to light is the eight millisecond delay rule. And this rule states that how we add charge weights together between boreholes based on the delay period between them. There's a lot of discussion that has centered around, can electronic caps reduce this from 8 milliseconds to 4 or 5 or 3 or some other number because we've gotten rid of the cap scatter? The answer is no. We've done a lot of research on this, especially recently, trying to answer this problem, analyzing hundreds of blasts from all over the world using non-electric and electronic detonators. And the data has come back conclusively to show cap scatter is not a major cause of increased ground vibration when we look at an aggregate of the blast data. If you have cap scatter go the wrong way, one blast may have a problem. But there's enough scatter in there that it does not substantially change it. And we cannot plug in, let's say, a 3 or 5 millisecond delay rule with an electronic into an industry standard equation that uses an 8 millisecond delay. So this doesn't change that delay process. What these caps do in ground vibration is give us the ability to substantially standardize that level of ground vibration. Now, we can then use two tools. The first is a signature hole delay, and a signature hole delay 
critical to understand this, does not give you the ground vibration that you will experience from a blast, especially large blasts. There's too many variables in there. What it does is it gives you the timing that you can use between holes or between, we'll call it detonations of explosive, that stands to give you the least amount of ground vibration. We have another tool called linear regression analysis and 95% confidence models. And these can be used with your normal everyday blasting. We can collect data on it from uh, the seismographs that are around the site from your typical normal blasts and use that to give you an indication for what type of ground vibration you're going to get from the actual blast. So the electronics give us, first off, the ability to be flexible with our time design and meet the actual rhythmic timing sequences from a signature hole analysis that we want to meet in an effort to reduce ground vibration as much as possible. And then we use them in our linear regression analysis and modeling data to standardize that data be able to more accurately predict what that ground vibration is going to be compared to a pyrotechnic delay element. And that's really where we were at about two to three years ago. But since then, there's been a, a lot of innovation occurring in the blasting cap space and the detonator space. And this is with wireless blasting caps. And these are really probably going to be the caps of the future. Today, they're used in, in more dangerous situations where we wouldn't necessarily want a blaster to have to be loading. For example, let's say we want to do a pillar extraction in an area. We're in an underground mine. We have a large stope, and we want to blast a pillar or an area that we know has a risk of potentially being somewhat unstable after a nearby blast has occurred. Well, this blast can be preloaded. Wireless detonators can be used there, and they can sleep for, let's say, five or seven days. We can detonate the blast next to it, muck that area out using, let's say, a robotic mucker so we don't have people in danger, and then we can fire that blast in that area to recover more ore. And that's really where these wireless caps are being used now. And so let's talk about how these wireless caps work. First off, they do not have two-way communication. So that means that you cannot uh, talk to them, let's say, and make sure that they are going to properly function. And so the question becomes, is that something that's still important for us in this regard? I'd say there's definitely some concern with it, uh, but as of right now, there's no capabilities of the system to handle that. And this is because of the general functionality of the system. What it has is a receptor. And you set up a large antenna structure at your mine site. And this antenna structure sends low-frequency magnetic waves. And it can send these through the earth, through the rock, soil, dirt. It can send them through air, or it can send them through water. And when it sends these waves, that the, the cap has a receptor that picks up that wave, that magnetic wave at that certain set frequency, and that triggers the cap. Now, it still has many of the regards of an electronic blasting cap, and in fact, they function very similarly with the capacitor system and the computer uh, contained in the wireless blasting cap. But there's no wires, so there's no communication back and forth. And so right now, this is a major safety innovation, especially in critical areas. 
what are the problems with these? Well, first off, they are still fairly expensive compared to an electronic blasting cap. I've heard that these systems run about 100 times the price of an electronic cap uh, as of about two years ago. And one of the main areas of work is in reducing this cost further and further. And this is why these are right now a specialty cap that are being used in places that, if not otherwise used, blasting could not occur. The other problem with these is the size of the actual cap. These are not small blasting caps we'd think of that could fit in the palm of your hand. These are large in size. Some of them are several feet long and three inches in diameter. So they're fairly large systems, uh, which also introduce other things in, into the blasting process. For example, reducing the amount of charge that can actually be put into the borehole. And so again, the main benefit right now is that these caps are being used in places that otherwise blasting could not occur and leading to additional recovery of ore, especially in underground mining situations. However, these wireless blasting caps are really the uh, major strategic change in the drilling and blasting industry. And this is because these wireless blasting caps give us the ability to autonomize blast loading. You, you have to understand one of the major problems today in the automation of blasting is that the wires in the blasting caps are difficult to handle. And in order to properly hook those up, you're talking about very advanced robotics and artificial intelligence systems. However, today we're already seeing things like autonomous drilling, right? So we can have a drill drive up to a spot, drill a borehole to a certain depth at a certain angle, retract that drill steel, move to another spot, and drill another hole. We can also use drones after the fact with millimeter accuracy to get where those actual boreholes are positioned. So we're really that far off from thinking about the fact that if we could get rid of wires in the detonators and the blasting process, we couldn't have a system that drives up to that hole that's been drilled by an autonomous drill, surveyed in by a drone that's been flown over from a mine office or an engineering office, and drive up put a pipe down into that hole, put in a wireless blasting cap, and then load that hole with explosives, especially bulk explosives. I don't think that that's that far away. And so one of the major benefits of these blasting caps, these wireless caps, is the fact that they open the door to automation of the actual loading process. And this is going to be a major strategic change. It's going to improve safety. It's going to improve productivity. Now, in the wireless space, there's a few key things that are need to be worked on and are being worked on currently. First off, how do we reduce the cost of the wireless blasting caps? Part of that, too, is just getting them under large-scale manufacturing. Once we start manufacturing them, uh, on large scales and large proportions, that cost will be reduced. And as the technological innovations come through, that cost will also be reduced. The second is reduction in size. And again, this shouldn't be something that scares us because we saw in the 1980s, the electronic blasting caps were also much larger in size than they are today. And there's likely processes and systems that will be employed in order to reduce the size. There's also things that may be done in the blast design. For example, let's say we're on a surface bench. Well, what happens if we sub-drill deeper? 
We know how subdrill works. It changes the tension zone in the face for that blast. So if we subdrilled, uh, let's say, three feet deeper to put this larger cap in, we could still get the same amount of explosive without significantly degrading the floor. Because we know after a blast, we know very well how subdrill works. We don't have mass breakage of the floor of a shot. We really only get that breakage up until the grade that we're already at. And this is because the way a blast works, we have radial fracturing that occurs followed by flexural failure. And that flexural failure is the major breakage mechanism in a blast. That's that forward push and bending of the blast that we see from a good shot. The radial fracturing will put some fractures into the floor, but these are often filled with things like dust and fines, and you typically don't see them. Think about the last time you were at a mine site or a construction project, looked down, and you saw major breakage all across the pit. It's not something you normally see. So if we put that, if we can do that, we can now accommodate this larger cap, and as the technology progresses and these caps become smaller, we can then reduce that total size, and eventually likely get to the place where we do not have these large, long systems. Finally, another thing that's being worked on and looked into is, is it possible to have two-way communication? And this will likely come as the technology progresses on sending and transferring these magnetic waves, what type of uh, systems we can have that process them, and as we move forward, that may be a possibility down the road. But still, is that something that's of critical importance to us in the blasting process? And that's going to be one of the major questions that we're going to have to answer over the next five to ten years here as these technologies progress. The major thing that has to be considered if wireless blasting caps will take over is can we replace the incredible knowledge of our blasters in the field to deal with geologic scenarios. This is going to be the key question, and this is why I say I don't think we'll ever fully get rid of blasters. I think in certain situations, let's say you're in a large copper pit uh, in the western United States, there we may see automation of uh, drilling and of loading, and it's likely to happen. Because we can standardize a lot of the systems, and we're not typically varying the load in each borehole. But what about in a construction project? Are we going to see there a uh, the ability to bring in these autonomous systems? Will they be able to communicate with the drills and accurately pick up the geologic conditions? Will they be able to vary the explosive load as we go through and install decking and stemming? And these type of things that ensure that fly rock doesn't occur, we don't get blowouts through soft seams, we don't have excessive ground vibration. Those will be the questions that we'll have to answer 5-10 years from now. But as we currently sit, there's a lot of technology going into this, and we're seeing a major strategic change in blasting to go to automation and that's really being led by wireless blasting caps because that's one of the last pieces of the puzzle in order to achieve that. And that's the end of this episode on academyblasting.tv, your home for explosives engineering. Please make sure you check out the site at academyblasting.tv and plug your email into the form directly below the podcast player to be notified when every new podcast episode launches so you don't miss a thing in the world of explosives. 
Also, please subscribe to us on Apple, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever else you may listen to podcasts from. This helps us a lot and make sure that the show gets passed on to others. And please feel free to share this with your friends, your colleagues, and your coworkers that are interested in the world of explosives. My name is Dr. Anthony Konya, and I'm looking forward to being with you as we go into the future of explosives. <laughs>